They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy uh, today's episode. Um, every once in a while, there's an episode that's just uh, a little bit better than all the rest, and it's always because of the guest. And uh, my guest, Jordan Gambrell, uh, was just really great to talk to. He is the uh, founder, chief content producer, and editor over at Operation Libertas. They're at OperationLibertas.com. And... Uh, one of the things they focus on is foreign policy and war, and that is because of uh, Jordan's experience and kind of why he moved toward uh, being a libertarian and wanting to speak out on things. Uh, Jordan's a Green Beret. I think once you're a Green Beret, you're always a Green Beret, even if you're uh, retired or not in the Army any longer. So he is a Green Beret, and he's a former captain uh, in the U.S. Army. He was uh, deployed to Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. He was in for nine years. He was in Syria um, when ISIS was uh, still uh, holding territory over there. And uh, he talks about his experiences over there. And uh, just a really moving uh, sort of description of uh, one of the events that uh, happened that made him to really start questioning uh, what uh, war is and why it happens and who it benefits and, and who it doesn't. Um, so he kind of describes what happened, how his thinking uh, started uh, changing and uh, what he decided uh, to do about it. And one of the things they do, uh, I want to uh, tell you about just so when you hear him, you'll hear it again and maybe you'll uh, act on it. They, um, over at OperationLibertas.com, they sell copies of Scott Horton's Enough Already, which is a great book if you uh, have been living under a rock or, or you're new to the uh, liberty movement. Of course, uh, Scott is one of the best, if not the best, libertarian voice we have on uh, war and foreign policy these days. And Enough Already is a book basically – uh, talking about the U.S. involvement in the world from around the the Jimmy Carter administration uh, up until now, so basically my lifetime, and uh, he really breaks down, you know, why these things happened, what the effects were, and uh, Jordan was greatly influenced by Scott's thinking and reporting, and uh, uh, also you know what you read at antiwar.com. 
uh, which Scott is, of course, involved in. And so one of the things that Operation Libertas does is they, they sell the book, and then when you buy a copy, uh, they uh, arrange to have a copy uh, given or placed in a place where uh, active duty, current military uh, personnel uh, will uh, pick it up, uh, either by you know handing it to them directly or, or leaving it somewhere. And he's gotten a good response from that, kind of uh, replaying uh, what happened uh, to get him thinking about these things. And I, I really enjoyed our discussion uh, on this. And I think it's uh, uh, something we need to remember as libertarians, even though we're very, very anti-war. And I think that's the number one issue, uh, kind of hand in hand with uh, central banking. Uh, I think we have to be wise about how we approach people and about how we uh, talk about this issue. There's sometimes when you really need to light somebody up and call them out. And there's other times when you need to plant seeds and get people thinking about, okay, what is, what exactly is going on here? What's my role in it? And uh, Jordan has a real thoughtful uh, approach to that because that's kind of, kind of what happened to him. So I really uh, think you are going to, to learn a lot from this episode uh, before we get into it, I want to uh, uh, remind you of a couple of things going on with the Mises Caucus. We just uh, uh, launched a webpage called runaslibertarian.com, and I'll link to that uh, on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash nine zero. And uh, it's basically, if you are a uh, candidate or if you've been thinking about being a candidate for local office at the county level or below... Um, I shouldn't say below because it's actually more important the the more local you get. So at the county level or smaller, uh, or if you want to be a, a campaign manager, a um, a really committed volunteer um, uh, to to help with a campaign for one reason or another, um, maybe you don't want to be a, a candidate. I know if I ever did, my wife would skin me alive. So um, uh, I'm not going to ever be a candidate, but. Uh, 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 I can help out in other ways. And so if you want to help out by being a campaign manager and you're interested in getting some training and uh, finding out how uh, you can get plugged into what the Mises Caucus is doing with uh, local candidates and campaigns, go over to runaslibertarian.com, sign up. You, um, I think you have to, uh, most people who do that, uh, if we determine that you're not uh, um, uh for some reason or another, not quite in the right place. Like if you want to run for state, you know, U.S. Senate or something, that's really not what we're doing, I don't think. Uh, but anyway, go over to runaslibertarian.com, sign up, um, and uh, you should be able to get some uh, training. Uh, the Leadership Institute, I think it's called, the yeah, Leadership Institute is helping out with some of our training. Some of our in-house people um, who have experience in campaigns are doing um, uh, some of the training. Amy Lepore is a board member and she's in charge of our uh, candidate and campaigns operation and she's just doing a great job. So to get plugged into that, run as libertarian.com. If you can't be a candidate, can't be a campaign manager, you can always support Mises PAC uh, because we, um, one of the big things we do with the money uh, that people entrust with us is to find local candidates and winnable races and uh, support them with uh, direct campaign contributions 
as well as we're really ramping up the the training, the resources, funneling volunteers to their campaigns. So uh, to do that, as always, go to takehumanaction.com, sign up for uh, our email list if you haven't done so yet. And also at takehumanaction.com, you can uh, become a monthly contributor to the Mises Caucus. Uh, or if you, if you don't want to set up a long-term, you know, recurring monthly donation, which we like for you to do because that helps us budget. But if you have a little extra money and just want to do a one-time gift, you can do that as well. So please do that. Also, last thing, if you um, are not a member of the National Libertarian Party and you believe in uh, Angela McArdle and uh, the, the new crew that we elected uh, back over Memorial Day weekend, in Reno, um, you need to step up and, and join the national party. I think it's $25, uh, to be, uh, considered a, you know, sustaining member or whatever the actual term is. Um, that's important for two things. One to just support the party, uh, and give them resources and give them numbers to do what they're doing. And also it helps your state get uh, representation at the next libertarian national convention. So it's not based on like the electoral college, so, um, you know, Tennessee, where I'm at, uh, has fewer electors than Ohio, where I used to be. Uh, but if Tennessee has more dues paying members to the National uh, Libertarian Party, then Tennessee gets more delegates. So uh, we want our Mises people uh, to be represented in those counts so that uh, the Mises, uh, you know, the, the states with the most Mises caucus representation earn the right to have more delegates. So go to lp.org slash join uh, to do that. If you're not sure if your membership is current or if you have other questions related to that, uh, email them at info at lp.org and they'll get you sorted. Um, so do all that, get plugged in with the Mises Caucus and uh, enjoy this uh, great episode with my guest, Jordan Gambrell. It's a pleasure to have you on. I, I wanted to thank you for reaching out um, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, saying you'd be willing to be on the show. Um, and uh, I've had a, a, several other people like, hey, I'll be on the show. And there's like not much there yet to, to, to talk about, but you've got a lot uh, in your resume to talk about. And before we get into kind of some of the big stuff, um, I, uh, I Googled you and you had some pieces on Libertarian Institute uh, two and a half years ago now, uh, right during like that first month of the of what I like to call the panic of 2020 plus, <laughs> you know, it's, we're still kind of in it. But um, but even in March, that first month, you, you wrote uh, a couple of articles about the whole, uh, you know, 15 days to, to stop the spread and, and all that stuff. And uh, I'm going to link to those on the show notes page at uh, decentralizedrevolution.com slash 90. Um, and so I, I just wanted to, you you nailed it um, right up front. And I want to give you credit for that because it took me several weeks to to fully figure out what exactly was going on. But, but you seem to have it right off the bat. Well, uh, first off, you know, thanks for having me on here and I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I and I don't. I would just kind of credit a lot of that to listening to people who are kind of smart, not not necessarily just on like COVID or what any one particular area, but just, you know, being principled and, you know, sticking to that and just kind of making common sense decisions. Yeah. Um, 
and it really kind of inoculates you from the propaganda. Um, I, I mean, I remember thinking even before COVID became a, a big deal and there was even before mentions of, of lockdowns, I remember hearing about this virus and just thinking like, man, they're going to use, th this is going to be something that's going to be used as soon as they feel the need. And, uh, Scott Horton had some good points about it. He was like, he actually kind of had a different take. He kind of thought it was going to be a little more of a big deal, but that they pushed it to the side because at, at in February of 2020, uh, a lot of people probably forgot, but they were doing the whole impeachment of Donald Trump and everything. Yep. And it was like, let, the news was, his take was the news is going to push that. And then once that kind of dies down, oh, then they'll shift over. Um, and, but I just kind of saw it from the get-go happening. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the, the 15 days to flatten the curve. I just, I, I still remember seeing all those graphs on the news as that was going on. And it's like, okay, 15 days to flatten the curve, but they always, they always just talked about flattening and keeping the numbers down. But it was like, okay, there's a, another axis of this graph that shows it extending out over time. And like, is that, isn't that also something to worry about? And, and no, Nobody in their coverage of it ever talked about that aspect of it, of it. Okay, we can flatten it, but that means it's going to take longer. And it just seemed like such an obvious thing that should at least be discussed. Mm -hmm. And no, everyone was just glossing over it. Um, I, I think that's it. I think people kind of thought, oh, well, two weeks and then uh, we do this and this thing will spread out over like three or four months. And by Labor Day, we'll be back to normal. Right. And so like. I think that's kind of the impression I had and that other people had. It's like, oh, first, the first week or so, it's like, oh, it, it, it almost felt like they were setting us up like we were in an episode of The Walking Dead or something because they're like, oh, you can have the thing for two weeks without symptoms. Uh, so basically people can be walking around with this. And so I remember, you know, I went to check on my next door neighbors who were uh, in their 70s to make sure they had food and toilet paper. And I remember like standing like 10 feet back from their door and all this. And everybody was like super nervous and we're like, Oh, okay, well we can do this for a couple of weeks. And which means people will get sick for two or three months. We'll spread it out. They'll all get it and we'll be done. And then it took me a couple, three, four weeks to realize that, Hey, wait a minute, this is government doing this. And like my first instinct was things, weird things happen in the world and, you know, sometimes you just have to deal with it. But then the more and more I found out, then I was like, okay, I kind of see. And I just had Michael Rechtenwald on the previous episode here. And we kind of came to the same conclusion. It's like, well, whether it was like planned and intentional or whether it was, you know, a mistake that kind of accidentally got out of the lab or whether it was something that nature did, you know, government, as they always do, they took advantage of it and turned it to their purposes. So the fact that you were asking those questions a little before most people, uh, you, you get, uh, you know, strong libertarian points for that, for having your <laughs> radar, your radar up very, very early. <laughs> well, I mean, that's great to hear, but I wish I could have actually done something to change more people's minds. So we hadn't gotten to this point. Uh, well, it, but then people... I guess, you know, people opened up my eyes and allowed me to see it. So I guess it, it's happening, you know, no, I feel like there's all these things like vaccine passports and everything that I, I really kind of credit, whether it's Mises Caucus or, or libertarians or whoever from 
even if, you know, people want to talk about, you know, Twitter warriors or whatever and like make fun of it. But I think there's something to be said about people online pushing back against these ideas. And even if it's only, you know, 10 percent of the comments or whatever, it's enough pushback that people are realizing like, oh, people are onto these things and they're they're getting even if other people aren't buying our whole message we're putting out the idea that like, no, this is wrong. This you're not thinking about this aspect of it. And it's giving people enough ammunition to be like, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily agree with everything, but like we should be pushing back against this thing. And and that's a start at least. No. And that's what as libertarians, I think that our messaging, you know, there was a lot of um, like with Justin Amash's thing at the convention and kind of the, the, the approach of some libertarians, which I'm not entirely like entirely opposed to, but practically I think that some libertarians think, well, we need to be talking to like the average American voter and trying to like, uh, you know, market ourselves to the hundred million voters, right. Or however many 120, I don't know how many voted for president last time. But like, to me, it's like, I'd rather try to get the, the one or 2 million people who are most adjacent to us to, to wake them up and to get our numbers stronger. So instead of a million libertarians, we have three or four and and we kind of go from there. I think it's, uh, it's kind of a, not going to be an overnight thing. And people do kind of, people kind of have to make up their minds on their own. And I went through kind of a similar process on war and foreign policy um, as you did, uh, although from a completely different life circumstance, but it was one of those things where I was like a libertarian, like everything else, except I was like a neocon on foreign policy for a few years there. And then I just kind of started hearing comments, seeing this and that. And like, it just started tugging on the string of like, Oh, wait a minute. If I'm a libertarian here, okay, that's the same thing as that. And I, I just started putting it together because of people um, being annoying online, you know? Um, so that's what we got to do. So let's go ahead and get right into a little bit of your background, what you're doing now um, and kind of how you, you got from uh, someone who was, um, uh, well, first of all, let's, let's get into the, I, I always have, I ask bad questions because I ask like six questions at a time. Let's start by this. <laughs> um, I In the intro, I already kind of said uh, who you are a little bit. First of all, um, the first line of your bio, Jordan uh, Greenberry, former captain in the in the U.S. Army. So explain what that is. I think some people uh, are not uh, 100% clear on exactly what a, a Green, Green Beret is. So start, start with that, yeah, how, how you got to be that and that what was, it is. Yeah. A lot of times I tell people like I was special forces and they were like, Oh, so you, were you like a Navy SEAL? And I'm like, no, I was special forces. That's right, right. a specific thing, which, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, special operations forces kind of covers everything from Navy SEALs to Rangers, Green Berets, uh, but specifically army special forces are the Green Berets. Um, so I started in the military as an infantry officer um, and, and as an officer, really nobody, really nobody in the military goes straight into special forces. Um, there's some programs for enlisted guys where they do 
go on a, a, a training pipeline and kind of go straight into that. Um, but that's kind of rare. Um, but as an officer, I started out in the infantry and I deployed to, uh, to Iraq. And then uh, after that deployment, uh, that's when my opportunity to go to selection took place. And so I went and basically with a bunch of other guys for three weeks, uh, we went through this training where basically they decided if we were going to get selected to go on and do the special forces training, um, which that was another year and a half, two years of training before becoming a, a Green Beret. And um, basically the a lot of people, I think what they would consider what, what Green Berets do is if anyone's seen the uh, movie 12 Strong, where the Green Beret teams that went into Afghanistan at the beginning, you know, they let they met up with the Northern Alliance and they helped to use them with on horseback and going right alongside them, dropping bombs on the Taliban. And and that's kind of the bread and butter of what Green Berets do. You know, Navy SEALs are a little more known for like kicking indoors and doing raids and stuff like that. Uh, the, where the Green concept, Berets more get to well, the the concept is a force multiplier, right? That, that uh, teams of like, what is it like 12 guys, you put them on the ground somewhere to meet up with the, the local, you know, the army or the resistance or whatever that we're helping you train them up, you get them Intel, you call in the air. Is that, is that kind of, do I have that right? Yeah. Basically a 12 man team is supposed to be capable of training a battalion size element of a, a foreign nation, whether that's, a standing army of a foreign nation or some kind of guerrilla force that we're training mm -hmm. to overthrow a current government. Right. So, um, so you did that. Let's talk a little bit about, cause I, uh, from some of the people I know who come from that world, it's kind of a fascinating story of the selection process, uh, both psychological and physical, what they, what those recruits go through and so talk about what that is and what the army is what are they trying to find and you know uh okay we don't want you but we want you what are they what are they trying to find uh in that selection process and how do they do it you know that's a good question that i've asked myself a few times because there's certain things that i you know i don't necessarily know why they're picking certain things um part of me thinks that there's certain groups certainly that they're looking more for like robotic type of people like you know navy seals and like delta force or more they're looking for just like a robot who doesn't really question a whole lot i would say in with green berets they are looking for people that are a little smarter a little you know maybe not i will give navy seals they're they're tough as shit you know they're hardcore uh they may not always be looking for quite that they need a little more well-balanced where somebody who's willing to question some things because you're going to be put in situations where you can't just call higher headquarters if you have a question about something you have to be the one to kind of make the decision on the ground um but at the same time as we kind of discussed earlier with other people you know that they kind of I feel like a lot of Green Berets tend to be have more of the mindset of, of us where they do question authority a lot more. And that's not really what you want out of a soldier in the military. Uh, I mean, I, I personally, I think that is how it should be. We should be questioning that so that we're doing the right thing, not just following orders that end to, you know, endless wars, actually trying to win some of these wars. 
um, preferably ones that we get into that are actually, you know, legitimate. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, as far as what they're looking for, I I think that's there, there might be like a bigger scheme of what the military thinks that they want, but like everything, it kind of comes down to the individual, whether the person picking you, I remember sitting down with the guy who told me that I was selected and he was basically going through a laundry list of things that he was like, well, you didn't do that good on this or that, but they were all things that I would have. It was like testing, like a, a psychological eval or IQ test that I, I don't know what the results are, but I knew physically like in a run or a ruck, how I, like I knew I finished in the top 10% or whatever. Mm -hmm. He was kind of leaving those things out. So I, I don't know how much of it was just a mind game to tell, yeah. like make me think I didn't make it just to finally at the end, tell me I did. Um, or maybe I did really suck at all these other things. I don't really know. Now, so don't they do... it... Go ahead finish what you're uh, saying. A, yeah. A lot of it is like they, they, kind of mask what it is that they're looking for in a sense. Like you don't know unless you're, you kind of been in a while and you're in that group of right. the people selecting it. And from the, I, I know a few people who have gone through selection and uh, a few of them who did see action in uh, uh, Iraq and or Afghanistan. And in that selection process, don't they like when you're like super tight, like, like wake you up in the middle of the night or like after a big long thing, physical then they'll like sit you in a room and kind of like give you this psych eval that's got all these weird questions and like they're 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 trying to see how you um basically how your mind works in all kinds of different stress situations and things like that right it it, it, it seems very it sounds very disorienting uh from what uh, i heard of of what that's like yeah i do think they're kind of they're one thing they are looking for is kind of flexibility and like, okay, we want you to be smart and we want you to be strong, but we need you to come in and out of those two things. Not just mm. like, okay, for the next three days, I just have to be real strong and I can turn my brain off. You have to be able to switch it on and off as needed. Um, you'll go from doing a 10 mile ruck march. And then later that day, you're sitting behind a computer doing some kind of IQ test or something, or you're mm -hmm. taking a Scantron test over something. Um, and it's all just kind of coming at you, not super fast, because you do have kind of a lot of downtime in between events, but you don't know what's coming next. Yeah. So um, if I remember right, um, most of the guys, uh, you are meant to have like expert, expert um, language skills and at least one other, language than English. And also they tend to have like a specific specialty on the team. It, it, did I have that right? And, and if so, what was your language and your, your specialty once you, once you qualified? Yeah. So my language was uh, Persian Farsi. Uh, so quite a bit of, especially guys scheduled to go to fifth group were taught Farsi, which, you know, for those who don't know, that's what they speak in Iran. Um, so that's kind of an interesting aspect there too, right? That they're, we're, we're not like at war really in any country where that's a predominant language yet. We're always preparing for whatever the DOD or the U S government wants to kind of be prepared to fight next. So yeah. that should be kind of telling that in Russian was always kind of big, even though, you know, you know, up until Ukraine, why did we have any reason to <laughs> be at war with them? Right. Right. Um, 
uh, and then as far as what my specialty was as, as the officer, basically I was going to go to a team and be the team commander. So my specialty was more in like planning and organizing and, and leading. Um, but then you've got guys who are weapons specialists, communication specialists, med- medical specialists, and, uh, who am I engineering? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got an Intel guy, uh, who's usually, he came from one of those other specialties and he's moved up. Um, and then every, every, so basically you have six different jobs, but then there's basically two of each person. So you've got like a senior and a junior of, of everything. And that way you can always split into two teams if you yep. need to and still have all those capabilities. Um, and meanwhile, we're always kind of cross training each other. So, you know, the medical guys, you know, teaching me how to do tourniquets and check, you know, blood pressure and check for injuries and how to treat certain things. And I can't do everything he can do, but if he gets hurt, you know, somebody can step in and do his job to some degree. Right. So you can be, the idea is to be, able to be fully autonomous. Like you guys, you guys got no like UPS dropping off supplies every, every day. You guys are out in the middle of Syria or Iraq or, um, you know, uh, in Pashtun territory in Afghanistan or whatever. And that's it. You guys, you have what you have and you got to make do. And so that's kind of the thing is that, uh, it's, it's actually kind of, uh, it is kind of, you know, uh, incredibly interesting and difficult. And it, I think it, it kind of works well for like, you talk about like the first three months in Afghanistan. Um, from my understanding, that whole model kind of worked exactly like they wanted to, right. Before we started putting tons of non SF guys on the ground, uh, they got a lot done in a very short amount of time with not too many guys. Really, it worked even better because t- technically, by the by the manual, it's, that kind of warfare is supposed to take like fourteen years to like overthrow a oh. standing government and put in a new one and all this stuff, and it happened in like three weeks. And, and that's that's where it should have ended. It should have been like, yep. okay, we we had no beef with the Taliban. Yep. It should have been, you know, go after Al Qaeda. And if we had, if there were Taliban fighting back, okay, maybe, you know, whatever you have to do with them. But after three weeks being in there, like every, everyone should have been home by Christmas. Yep. And honestly, the the Afghan people probably would have been fine with that because even the Taliban didn't want Al Qaeda there. There just wasn't much they could do about it. Right. They didn't really control the country. Like we imagine a government can control its country. Yeah. Um, and it, it wasn't until we started sending in all these, you know, regular soldiers and then then they became targets and there was actually david kilcullen wrote a book called the accidental gorilla and basically saying how these afghans you know you know my grandfather fought against the soviets and his grandfather fought against the brits and like it's there's an invading force in my country it's my duty to go they didn't have any beef with america necessarily right at least certainly at the beginning but now that there's this invading force, it was their duty to kind of fight back against it. Then after 10, 15, 20 years of killing civilians and all this, that then there actually did have some beef against us. Right. That's what, that's a, a insurgency math, right? <laughs> yeah. You kill, you kill one guy and now you have five more enemies because his, his brother and his nephew and his son all hate you now. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so this is a good time to talk about kind of your uh, the beginning of your 
journey to where you are now. And that's the, um, I'll let you explain what the motto of uh, Special Army Special Forces is. And again, because some of the guys that I went, um, that I know who went over there, uh, one um, actually who didn't go over there because uh, of circumstances beyond his control is a hardcore Mises type libertarian now. But some of the other guys, like they were, like you said, kind of almost libertarian, certainly on the conservative side of things, had a healthy skepticism of government. I remember one guy after he did his first tour in, I I forget, because he did Iraq and then Afghanistan or vice versa. And he came back and he was like, we're never going to accomplish anything in that country. And and it doesn't matter which country it was because he turned out to be right. (laughs) He turned out to be right in both places. But he was just like, yeah, it's basically a huge government program and it's horrible. And um, yeah, it's not going to work. But like a lot of guys are attracted to special forces because of their motto and what they are kind of billed as their reason for being. So so talk about that and, and your motivations for wanting to do it. Yeah. So the motto is de oppresso libre, uh, freedom for the oppressed. And I remember you know, learning about Green Berets when I was a kid, even, and just thinking like how cool and kind of noble in a sense that was, you know, going in a very blue pilled, especially as a kid and not understanding a lot more behind it, but just thinking like, yeah, these guys are going in and they're trying to help the locals and learn what it is that they need and what they need to do to help defeat their oppressors. Um, and, always thinking, you know, obviously if they're being oppressed, then obviously whoever's doing it's got to be the bad guy and not learning more about, you know, the stories and propaganda that are really going into selling these wars. Um, but that all seemed really cool. And as we talked about earlier, all like the kind of cross training and how this 12 man team can be such a force multiplier and do so much more that was always very cool. And I mean, even even looking back on it, I just think like, man, if we had just kind of done what we should have done, maybe I never would have been red pilled and never like we could have like the American empire probably could have kept accomplishing great things as far as, you know, from the empire mentality goes, if they had just kind of stuck to doing what was right. And I probably, I might not have ever had my mind changed as it is now. Uh, you know, like if in Afghanistan, if they had gone in and just like kicked butt and gotten out and that was the end of it, man, think about how like scared the whole world would be of the U.S. Like they got attacked on 9-11 and it took them three weeks to just go in and like eradicate this terrorist group and then get out and everyone was celebrating before the year's end. Like that would have, other countries would have been like, oh man, like America's, that's big and bad. And they did it with a small little force. And they would uh, respect us because then we left them. We did. Yeah. We, we, we did what is justifiable. And it, uh, I'm a pacifist. Like you defended so, yourself. Yeah. You defended yourself. You went after the guys who actually did something to you. And then it, again, it, you, if we would have uh, done it the way kind of the storybook way is like, Oh yeah, we, we cut, we leave, we cut Afghanistan a check, say, sorry that uh, we bro- broke a few things. I'll go back to, take your country back. Right. But that's not, that's not what happened. So, um, so talk, so when, um, you were in Syria, so start talking about, so you go into it with that. Um, I think about when I was a kid, the GI Joe, uh, figurines that came in little 
bubble things and on the back it had all their specialties and things like that so uh, you know that's the, that's what we learn as kids that oh yeah we're the good guys and to be clear a lot of these guys are great guys but they buy this narrative and then they're the, they are then used for ends that that either they don't understand or that they come to understand and a lot of them not be cool with so you go into it thinking hey i've got all this training i'm going to be doing this very difficult stuff but it's for a really good reason um and you're highly trained you're very good at what you do like i can't stress enough like the guys who do make it as far as you did are very accomplished in a lot of things they're not just like tough guys who can shoot right there's there's a lot that goes into that so that we have this great thing that we produced um going off to do this thing and then what uh just talk about your experiences from there the mindset that you started with and and uh how long it took for that to to start changing maybe yeah well i mean even pretty much right right around the time that i became a green beret was uh 25th beginning of 2015 and you know that's the start of like clinton trump and that that really was when i politically when i started being like okay i can't have anything to do with either (laughs) of these two parties anymore um and i was always kind of saw myself as somewhat of you know a moderate like i'm gonna figure i'm gonna listen to them both and see who's you know best before i realized no they're both just terrible um so that's kind of i was already starting to get into some of the like libertarian ideology and philosophy and all that um right around that time and i was already i already knew that you know iraq and afghanistan were kind of a joke and like specifically iraq like we should never have been in there afghanistan oh maybe you know we had a good reason to go but we shouldn't have stayed um but i still for whatever reason i I guess i just didn't know enough at the time i I still thought like syria was like a justified thing and we were there for good reasons um but i'd already started before i deployed to syria i was already getting into scott horton and learning you know just cracking the surface on what he knows about all this stuff. Um, So I I had like the seeds planted while I was there. Um, And then while I was there, just things I saw, it it was, it was pretty obvious that like, this is not, this doesn't make sense or this isn't right. Like what we're doing. Um, You know, you hear, it's not that the U S military like in ever intentionally targets civilians, uh, with maybe the case of uh, what's his name in, in, was it in Yemen? Um, and I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the, was it the, the kid? Um, yeah. The kid and his dad. It, I, um, I, Anwar Al-Waki. Yeah. I yeah. That, I'll look it up and put um, it on the show notes page, but yeah. With, with the exception of that, which was, you know, direct targeting the, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, there was never any like, Oh, these are civilians. We're going after them. There was a lot of steps taken to avoid it. But once there's a difference between like, like if I just plucked you off the street and like put you in our little op center and said like, Hey, tell us how we can do better at like avoiding civilian casualties. You would probably actually be able to look at it and say, well, this doesn't really make sense because how, how do you know? Like you don't Mm -hmm. know what you're actually targeting here. But when you're, 
within the system and you've got military lawyers telling you, oh, yeah, as long as you hit this criteria, this is like a legal, legitimate target. And then you've got these intel guys telling you like, well, we've picked up this intel here, here and here. So, you know, it's likely that this is enemy, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of like the whole reason we have trials, right, is because sometimes people are innocent and it's just some factors made them look guilty or something. Um, And so when we're running all these operations and we're gathering intel, we're not sitting down and having like a full blown trial and letting the guy like defend himself beforehand. We're just dropping a bomb. Even if we're right, even if he was, you know, planning some terrorist attack or he was planning to attack our base or something. Well, that doesn't get rid of the wife and kids that were laying in the room with him too. Um, And so none of it is like we're directly targeting, but it's happening all the time. And the, the, the time that it first dawned on me, like, we don't know what is inside these buildings that we're hitting is we launched a strike all our criteria was met for everything and we watched the round punch a hole through the roof of this building but it it was a dud it didn't explode and a few seconds later you see like 15 women and children come running out of the building and you're like if that had gone off yeah everyone's dead they're not running out of the building we have no way of we would have never known so every time we did a strike and it went off we didn't know who else was in there we have to make sure that there's not women and children in the area, but that means we're doing these strikes at night. Women and children are inside sleeping at night. Right. So that was the first time it was like, all right, let me think about all these things that we're doing here. Like we can say we've checked all these boxes and legally our hands are clean, but that's all a bunch of BS really. It's was that, it's, was that going on inside your head or were other people talking about that? I don't think anyone else was talking about it one i mean i think your average person even in that situation was probably like oh we dodged the bullet on that one and aren't thinking how many other times this happened or a lot of times when when you see the feed and you see the building get exploded people are like hell yeah we got them um and and i'll admit like the first couple times we did that i I was kind of like that like hell yeah we got them um but then as you do it more, and that was my primary, I wouldn't say it was my primary job, but I was in charge of all the operations for our company. And so I was coordinating a lot of these different assets. So just about every strike we ever did, you know, I saw and had had a, a piece in it somehow. And so I was seeing it probably a lot more than the other people. Yeah. And again, I, I, I had just that grain of Tom, uh, Scott Horton, you know, information and Dave Smith kind of red pilling me to start questioning things enough to where maybe, maybe that was the only reason that I really saw into it is because I would already kind of knew some of these things aren't right. Our government's lied about these wars before, yeah. you know, maybe that's all that it, it took. Yeah. I don't know. So set the scene a little bit. So when you got to Syria, uh, what was going on? What were you told that you were trying to accomplish and why? Well, I, I, I'll have to back up a little bit because sure. the, that deployment started with me actually going to Turkey for three months and I was right on the border. 
Mm -hmm. Um, It was just me and three other guys from my team. And we were partnered up with the free, with some forces from the free Syrian army in uh, Northwest Syria. So this was kind of an area where Green Braves had recently gone in with the free Syrian army and kind of cleared out an area uh, of ISIS. And that was big for Turkey because Turkey kind of wanted to keep the Kurds off their border. And it kind of put a wedge between these two Kurdish groups. Um, And so that was kind of my area of operation for a little while going into it. And then we kind of closed that mission down and I met up with the rest of my team and my company in Syria. And so at that point it was the, we were finishing up um, we as in like, the U.S. military in Syria was finishing up operations in Raqqa, which was basically just bombing all of Raqqa. Anybody that moved was basically considered ISIS. And that was the last like real stronghold for ISIS in Syria. So my the, la- the next three months of my time in Syria was us focused on kind of the remnants that were down south of us. Um, there weren't really any stronghold areas. It was just kind of cleaning up the last like bits of ISIS. Um, so that was basically, that was what our goal was, but then a a further objective that my battalion commander told us directly was there's oil fields down here. And so we need to basically secure those so that we can use that as a bargaining chip against the Assad regime to create, whether it's some kind of federated system in Syria or whatever, it basically would be a bargaining chip. Um, and we know how, U.S. military likes to go into countries and protect oil. So. Really, really. Um, so it, I, I think I know some of this, but I am not going to trust my memory of uh, Scott Horton's book. Uh, so at the time, ISIS held a lot of Syria and a lot of like Western Iraq, uh, and so this, so the U.S. was operating over there. The Assad government had part of Syria, and ISIS had the rest, and so. So the U.S. was trying to eradicate ISIS, but were they working? But they weren't working with Assad, right? Am I no? And so yeah, Assad and Russia were basically fighting ISIS too, just more to the west and the in the central and southern area, and we were really just in eastern Syria. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. In Iraq, Mosul was the big like ISIS stronghold, and that was more in. Uh, Western Iraq. So basically everything from Western Iraq to Eastern Syria was basically, you know, ISIS mm-hmm. held area yeah. for a while. Yeah. So just talk a little bit more about how um, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left. I, I could literally talk to you about this all day, but like, so you're over there, you're, you're describing, um, you know, what you're doing you had the close call you're are, are at this at the while you're over there can you still get podcasts are you still listening to scott and dave while you're over there or is it just seeds that were planted before you got there uh it was really just the i so i could have i just i was working like yeah you were you were 20 hour pretty, days I, I would think there yeah. wasn't a whole lot of time but like sometimes yeah. i like to fall asleep with podcasts so i didn't i mean but i wish i wish i had i wish i had had scott horton in my ear because as i read his book and I don't know what he knew, you know, at that time, but everything I read, he would have been the best 
uh, intelligence source that I could have had because as I read back on things, I was like, oh, that's why this was happening. That's what, you know, my own command either didn't know or wasn't informing me because mm-hmm. they have their own secrets they're trying to keep. Yep. Um, you know, with going back to when I was in Turkey was the one of the first gas attacks that, you know, Assad supposedly committed. And come to find out, you know, the the CIA was saying, yep, this is 100% was an Assad attack. And then I'm reading in Scott's book, and he's talking about how, well, the, the DOD actually did its own investigation, because they were like, oh, we're not really sure about this chemical attack. And then they basically they find out like, oh, these are all these are all things that were not part of Syria's like arsenal of chemical weapons. This was something that was actually created, funded by Saudi Arabia and given to El Nusra, a.k.a. Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, oh, well, that's you know, that would have been really good information to have known at, at the time. But the DOD wasn't about to inform me of that. They are perfectly fine keeping me who's on the ground like de- like. I'm the first one getting reports of a chemical attack and they don't want to let me know like, what's the backstory of all this. They're perfectly fine letting me, Oh, you figure it out. And if it happens to work out in our favor, where now we get to stay, because also remember this attack happened like days, if not like a week after Trump was like, yeah, we're getting out of Syria. Right. Conveniently. Yep. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, Scott was, I wish I had been listening to more of his podcasts at the time, or I wish I had just had him in my ear yeah. because it would have been, I would have had, I'd have been better at my job, honestly, because yeah. I would have known more. Well, I mean, that's kind of the, the point of, um, that's how government works, right? They only tell you what they want you to know and what you need to know to serve their purposes. And so wasn't there at times like, like, like you said, the DOD did something. So like the CIA backed guys were doing this and the DOD backed guys were acting at cross purposes. Right. So like even they don't even tell each, each other what they're, what they're up to half the time. Oh, there was actually a time where I forget which way it happened. I believe DOD backed forces attacked CIA backed forces Mm -hmm. in Northwest Syria. Um, which is, it's funny because literally the two sides that we're supporting were, were fighting each other, but also our own side can't coordinate enough to be like, Hey, these are our guys. Hey, these are our guys. We're kind of in the same area. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is pretty mind boggling. Um, so talk about that. There's a, I would imagine there's a long process, but I do want to give you plenty of time to talk about operation Libertas and what you're doing now. So Go ahead and take us on that. However quickly you want to get us from um, what you're what you started seeing and, and thinking about uh, while you're still on the job there in Syria uh, to where you are now. Yeah, so I mean, I got kind of the I, I knew I wanted to do something in this in the liberty movement. Um, I didn't really know what, and even five years ago, I didn't know half of what I know now. Um, so I just knew that I wanted to do something to help further the cause of liberty because as as i was finishing up you know a nine-year career in the military ostensibly joining to help spread and promote freedom i was realizing there at the end that nothing i had ever done nothing that anyone in the military has done for decades has done anything to 
promote liberty, whether it's here at home or in another country. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really wanted to focus on that and actually kind of live that special forces motto of freedom for the oppressed. Um, And so basically my, my goal with Operation Libertas is just to work with any organization who's going to push an agenda that's focused on liberty, whether that's a, a single action thing that I can work with one group one time or some a group like the Mises Caucus, who is kind of, you know, that that is the overall mission is to spread the freedom and liberate people within our own country. Yep. Um, so I'm glad that you had me on because that's that's my goal is to work with anybody I can to help promote these ideas and, and spread the message. So what what exact kind of organization I know from, uh, you know, with our stuff with uh, the pack and all that, you, you got to pick what type of organization you are and how, how you can raise money and, and what you can do. So what are what is your group a- actually doing and what do you want to be doing and and uh, how can how can people help? Well, uh, I'd say the biggest thing we've done is um, both through donations and people buying copies of Scott Horton's book that I I sell on my website, um, we were able to give a bunch of free copies away. Um, So one that's just promoting a great book and a great person in Scott Horton, but also just great. I mean, more people that read and understand the full history of like, you know, the war on terror and everything. Um, more people, both left, right, center, middle, up, down, are going to realize, you know, how wasteful all these wars are. Um, and so for every copy that I was selling, I was able to give a free copy away. But on top of that, what we were also doing is a lot of the free copies we were giving away, we were linking up with active duty guys in the military and being like, hey, I'll send you 10 copies. You just leave them around your base, leave them in the chow hall, leave them at the staff duty desk, just leave them laying around for guys to kind of pick up and read. So it's a little bit of a, you know, inside operation to try to change the mind of the guys in there, because honestly, a lot of them, as we kind of touched on earlier, a lot of guys join for these reasons. They just don't realize the truth behind it and kind of opening their eyes up. A lot of a lot of people are, if not have the same general idea, they're very much adjacent to those ideas and want to spread liberty. Um, They just need to realize that they're in the wrong organization to do that. Yeah, I one thing I have uh, seen and noticed both in the, the group of friends that I've referred to a little bit, but also in other uh, guys, uh, seems like the, the typical uh, military guy that I've run into seems a little more likely, if not a lot more likely to, to really want to do his own research. Like I think it, co- it comes to a point where um, uh, you're doing something, you kind of want to know more about it. And most, even guys who like, um, aren't libertarian, uh, that I've met who are in or have been in the military, like they, they've done a lot of reading and they know what they're, what they're, um, they know what they believe for the most part. I, I think some of the, like right when you get in, you don't, but after a while, it seems like people do really try to educate themselves. And so I think that's awesome that you're getting them stuff that, you know, even somebody who's coming at it cold and may completely disagree, I think they're probably more likely than the average American to look at a book and like, oh, maybe I'll check that out, right? So have you gotten good response from people? What have you been hearing of uh, people who have 
um, who have been uh, exposed to the book or, or what you guys are, are doing? I mean, most people, it's just, they're kind of blown away by just the, all the information. I mean, most, most people who are even going to crack open the book are already kind of like-minded, but, or know a lot of the kind of wave tops of these ideas, but as they read it, they're just like, I mean, people actually have told me they're like, I got mad. I had, I threw the book across the room, not oh, because no. I didn't like the book, but because it's just infuriating to learn the truth and what we've been doing um, and all the things that it, it could have, it didn't have to be this way. You know, it could have been avoided. It could have just ended before. Um, so people getting mad about it, but also, you know, they go back and they pick the book back up after throwing it across the room and they keep reading and they learn. And then the biggest thing is they, they pass it on to somebody else. I've had a lot of people who are like, I'm doing a free book giveaway and they're like, Hey, I've already read it, but you know, I'd love to give it to somebody else. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'll give it to you. If you've already read it, go hand it to somebody else, put it in a little free library somewhere, you know, just get the word out. Yeah. That's great. Um, Hmm. Let's see. I, I still have tons and tons of questions. So, um, did you, um, uh, something I read in what you were, uh, I think it was in your stuff or maybe it was something else. Um, talk about a, a lot of guys who, um, are in, uh, SF, uh, they become contractors and, and things like that is, did you ever do any of that and talk maybe a little bit about the role that, um, those guys play um, in because there are a lot of guys who are in working alongside the guys who are still actively in the army, right. That um, uh, sometimes things are, are done by private uh, companies, right? Yeah. So like, I, I never did any of that. Um, but while, while I was in Syria, I mean, we had a ton of civilian contractors that whether it was like, they're maintaining this piece of equipment or they're going to install this one or all these jobs. Really the goal is to just keep the troop numbers down, you know, that we can only have X amount of soldiers in Syria at this time. Like, okay, so we'll just get rid of this military job and put a civilian contractor in. And so the same jobs being done still, you know, by an American. uh, But then now we've just freed up, more basically more guys like me that can be more on the front lines or dropping bombs and stuff like that and just freeing up some of these other jobs that's a lot of what i saw while i was in um and then i've i do have i've had some buddies that have gotten out and they've gone and they're like yeah i'm gonna go sell weapons to the saudis i'm like really like (laughs) that's that clearly doesn't have the same kind of mindset that you know we do Right, because uh, they're fine going and doing that and making six figures off of it, and like, all right, I just yeah. hope you can sleep at night, which they probably can because they're not aware of these things. Well, and they got they got plenty of money to buy nice mattresses and pillows. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and that's the thing that you know Scott Horton calls it the self licking ice cream cone that the the defense contractors, uh, you know, get involved in this, and so for every contractor they have doing something, and the guy on the ground maybe. I mean, some of those guys make pretty good money. They probably been making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, at least some of them. And then, but then, so that guy gets paid that, but then Northrop Grumman or Titan or whatever, who is actually employing him, they get like double, right? Cause they, it's, 
those guys cost a lot. Of, they keep the numbers down of the official troops, but the but on the ledger books of like the money that's going out, that that stuff. There, there's a whole lot of people who have an incentive to do it that way because it's it's pretty lucrative. Yeah, there's yeah. there's the a javelin the javelin missile system, or at least the rocket is like a thirty thousand dollar rocket, or maybe it's more than that. It might be like seventy five thousand dollars. And the saying is that you know this rocket costs more than the guy firing it makes in a year, and he's shooting at a guy who won't make that in a lifetime. Yeah, and that kind of sums up the military-industrial complex and the American yeah. Empire's war mentalities. We're just going to war with these poor countries, just to really what ingratiate the defense companies. Yeah, um, and I hope this doesn't seem like a downer, but like I think it's important. Like, and you may have some experience of uh, people that you know, but like we still hear. I don't know how current the statistic is about, you know, how many vets commit suicide every day. And of course, you know, any uh, that you would have to look at, like, you know, the average, how many of non veterans commit suicide every day, but like it, it's still, I think it is certainly a problem that guys who, um, and it's more so the, the things that they see and they're asked to do rather than the stuff that happens to them, I think. But, so there are so many guys who um, are exposed to stuff and have such a hard time with it. And I'm just glad that, that a, that you were able to, to find a good way to, um, and I, I hope I'm not being presumptuous or whatever, but like to, to do something productive with that experience that has left a lot of other people um, a lot, a lot worse off. So like, is there, I guess I'm in addition to helping what you guys do, like what can, what can we do to help people who are maybe in that situation where they have seen some action and are struggling with it? Like, is there, what can, is there, are there things we can do if we run into somebody like that? What do we say? How do we talk to them in a way that's not going to make them feel worse? Uh, but to, uh, to try to help them out, I guess. I mean, it's tough because, I mean, I've not that I was, you know, at that building that I described earlier to see, you know, these women and children come running out, but I saw it on a feed and that, that in of itself, you know, has affected me. And I, I think how, how many other people, you know, did I have a hand in? Um, and so, you know, I have my own, you know, sins to atone for, I feel like, but I know there are a lot of other people who, I mean, they were face to face with death and yep. killing. And I think a lot of what gets them, I, I think people probably could maybe get through that easier if they really did know it was for a good cause or, you know, they were helping, they saved somebody else or something. But I think the more and more people are seeing how we're handling these wars, they're seeing that it is kind of for nothing. And that's where the real despair, I, I believe, kind of comes in. Um, where it wasn't, it was like, that was for nothing. Um, and so as far as what can you do, every, every individual is going to be different and what they, how they handle it. Mm -hmm. I think even, even somebody who's really having a hard time with it, it might be hard for me to relate to them and know exactly how to talk to them. I guess just, you know, if they're a family or a friend, just let them know that you're there. 
and willing to talk if they want to, but more than likely they're probably just going to want to talk to another vet or somebody that has kind of been through that before. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, you know, even in our community, people will still sometimes say, you know, thank you for your service, you know, blah, blah. Personally, I hate when people say that. I know it's coming from like either a good place or well-intentioned, but to me, my reply, I just want to be like, what? I didn't do anything for you or for anyone else. And so personally, you know, that's something that kind of bothers me. So I don't know how you approach somebody who may not even want to talk about these things to somebody who doesn't can't relate and can't understand. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have a very good answer for you. Whereas I would just say if it's a friend or a relative, you know, just let them know you're there if they do want to talk and you just have to be it seems obvious to say be open-minded, but realize like they might've done some terrible things and feel terrible about it and try not to judge them for those things. Mm. Um, If they do decide to sit down and and talk to you about it, they're probably going to tell you some pretty dark, dark things. And they're probably leaving out a lot of details. So just, I don't know, have patience and try to understand it from what they've gone through. Yeah. I I think as libertarians, and I think when I first kind of the flip switch for me and I became anti-war, like, I think I maybe came on a little too strong sometimes. And I, cause I, I think I, I, and it's the same way with like talking about cops and stuff like that. Like I have sympathy for like, those guys are people too. And you know, there's a small minority of people in those professions that they are like psychos, right? That they are really, really bad people. But for the most part, most of them are well-intentioned to some degree and are, are, are conflicted and don't into. So to me, it's, it's, I always want to be careful to like respect that person. Um, even though I may, cause I, I don't know his personal, what he did or his culpability or anything like that. And as a Christian, like it's not for me to judge that person, I do want to speak out against war and against a lot of the, you know, 98% of what the cops do, but also you want to try to have compassion for the people because ultimately we want to convince people to, Hey, um, we want to stop people from going into the military and we want to stop politicians from voting for this. And so it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to balance to support and be good to people who are struggling with something, but also be very firm on, Hey, this is the reason Uh, it's a hard thing to say, but the reason so many of these people are having problems is because they're serving a system that is corrupt and and doing bad things. And so I think that what you're doing of, of trying to get the message out there, and especially to people who are, you know, you're not beating people over the head. You're not chaining yourself defenses at the defense, uh, uh, base or something like that. You're just trying to expose people to the truth and letting them, um, uh, their minds and their souls take them where they need to go. So I think that's sometimes that's all we can do is just speak the truth and try to be nice to people. And, and hopefully, uh, that'll change some minds, I guess. Yeah. That's something I'm always working on too. Cause you get, yeah. you get on Twitter too much and you're, yeah. you know, <laughs> just talking smack to everybody, which is, has its own purpose, but 
then you kind of come back to the real world and you got to realize like, all right, I got to kind of calm it down a little bit. Then I got to explain this thing to people yeah. and they may not like it. They may not even understand. They may not agree, but you know, you got to just try to get that message across and try to get the truth out. And you never know. It's not always the person who you're talking to. Sometimes it's the people on the periphery, um, yeah. whether that's in, you know, the comments section or in real life it's not always the person you're talking to that you're convincing. It's the people around who are listening and being quiet and they're not saying anything, but they're taking it all in and they're hearing both sides. If your side is correct and right, more people are going to come to your side. Yeah. I, that's the thing is uh, I think that's a, a, a thing that I point out a lot too, is like when you're engaging someone, whether in a conversation or on Twitter or something like you may not be able to, most of the time, you're not going to be able to convince the person that you are locking horns with. But if you conduct yourself the right way, the people who are watching, they're interested enough to to see what's going on. And if you conduct yourself, A, with the, you know, speak the truth, but also try to be as compassionate while being firm at the same time, I think that that has a chance to win some people over. And even the people who resist um, sometimes the people who resist the strongest, uh, the, the liberty argument or the peace argument, those are the people who are already struggling with it, right? Because they've, it's hard to give up on something that you believe very strongly that you've been taught is right. You start to question it and it's like, oh, am I going to give up? And especially for somebody who's been, uh, who was maybe at the level you are like, that's a huge part of that guy's identity, and to all of a sudden at age 35 or whatever, be like, Oh, I need to be a different person. Like that's, that's a real heavy thing. And so, um, so they're going to, not everybody's going to take calmly to the, the change that uh, is starting to happen in them. So. Yeah. I mean the, the Scott Horton rule of like attack the left from the left and the right from the right, that's huge, but also just, and I think he says this too, you know, meet people where they are. Um, I, I gave a speech at revolution 2022. And one thing that I wanted to try to convey to that younger audience was um, it, it's basically like little pivot moves, you know, in basketball, you're on one foot and you mm-hmm. pivot on the other foot. And so you just meet, meet somebody where they are and see what they're kind of comfortable with. You know, once you can kind of find some common ground, all right, pivot to that topic and try to convince them. And, and then once, you know, they're kind of convinced of that or agree with you on something, then maybe you can pivot to another topic, but you're not going to just grab somebody and throw them to the other end of the court to convince them of your way. You know, yeah. it's, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be little, little fights here and there, little, little wins. Yeah. Um, one last little question before I uh, let you, you know, tell people what they can do to get in touch with you and everything. Uh, we, it's been a long time. I had, uh, I think Dan McKnight defend the guard, um, what they're doing, which is basically trying to get bills passed in the States, um, that make it more difficult for, uh, basically to enable the governor to say no to, if the feds want to call them up, uh, the national guard guys up, or I always get guard and reserve mixed up, but the troops that are under the control of a governor that if there's not war been declared, then the governor can say no. Um, That's one decentralized way that we can fight the war machine thing. Um, What do you think of that? And are there other things that we as the Mises caucus could uh, 
be telling our candidates and uh, maybe trying to recruit candidates who would uh, who would run on that um, uh, to help the war thing at, at a local decentralized uh, level. Yeah, I think the defend the guard legislation is, is huge. Unfortunately, I think we just need it to, to be pushed in more states. I mean, there's okay. a few states where it seems like it's really kind of gaining some traction. I don't know if it's actually passed anywhere yet, um, but it, it's gaining traction in a few places. And we just need like almost a full court press like that should be happening in every state. And it, it doesn't need to even just be a Mises caucus or a libertarian thing. Right. Like there's you got to kind of figure out what your state's like, you know, um, Whereas, you know, in Tennessee, maybe that's something that you can you should be able to convince Republicans of here. Um, and maybe that's something like I, I talked to a legislator in Maine and she was she was a Republican in Maine. She's like, any idea I bring up, it's not going to work in Maine because I'm, you know, the opposition. Right. So in Maine, you maybe you have to work with the Democrats to push it and you can you should be able to find people there. So every state, even every local area, I mean. Yeah, it's something that needs to be passed on a state level, but your local politicians, especially if you're in a bigger city, maybe they're the next people getting ready to move on to, you know, state level positions, maybe start getting into their ear while you still can and start thinking about that longer game, too. Um, I know we preferably we'd all like, you know, the government to just go away. But while it's here, play their game as much as you can. Kind of, you know, my Green Beret mentality is coming in and act as an insurgent, get in with the local ones that you can, especially if you see somebody that might be a a riser, even if you don't agree with them, you know, if, if there's somebody who's going to be making some moves, if you can convince them of something like defend the guard, and then they can take that on as they move up, you know, that could be a win. We'll take, we'll take the wins where we can, you know? And then even so much as just getting to know, and it sounds like a civics class thing, but like, if you can somehow establish a friendship with a city councilman or a DA or what, you know, whatever, like that, if they do move up and they know you, you know, like build that relationship. So when it comes time uh, to lobby them for something, they're like, Oh yeah. uh, uh, Jordan was a good guy. I remember talking to him at that. I'll, I'll at least listen to him. I'll sit down with him. And uh, uh, again, you never know um, what, uh, what your personal, what your personality can help put across. Uh, and so that's why both as whether you're going to be a candidate or not getting to know the other people who are running for things, uh, and establishing those relationships, um, can, and in some cases I've heard they, they do pay off. There've been some things that the crew, I'm still fairly new to Tennessee, but, uh, uh, they've established some good uh, uh, friendships and working relationships and have got a lot of things done. Not, not on the issue we're talking about yet, but uh, uh, hopefully one day. Right. So, yeah. Um, tell everybody um, uh, if you're watching this on the, uh, uh, on your screen, you see uh, uh, your Twitter, Twitter handle there, op libertas, op libertas. That's you on Twitter. Uh, obviously. How else can people get in touch with you? Do you need people to do things? Do you need money? Uh, just give, give, give the pitch to uh, 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 so people can help you out. Yeah, check out my site, OperationLibertas.com. Uh, if you go, go there, forward slash shop, you can buy a copy of Scott Horton's book. Um, every copy I sell, I'm going to 
give another free one away to, um, or if you just want to donate, you know, let me know either on there, hit me up on Twitter. Um, any basically all the money I get for it is just going to send out more copies of free books. If I run out of books, I'll go to Scott and ask him to, you know, see if I can buy some more from him. Um, so yeah, that's right now. That's the biggest way you could help is that I want to get that book into as many hands as possible. Um, he's got some other books coming out. We might have to ramp up for a new one. Um, but yeah, other than that, just follow me on Twitter and you'll see all my, my bomb tweets out there, throwing them at the establishment. Right. And so get in the comments and, uh, pick, pick a few people off, uh, bring them over to, to our side. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, all right, Jordan, I, I really, uh, this is, uh, I, I really could literally talk to you for another four or five hours. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I really, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Jordan Gambrell for his time and wisdom and uh, for his service uh, to Liberty. Uh, I, I, I really admire uh, the arc his life has taken and is taking and, uh, really impressive guy on many levels, uh, especially, uh, for just the, um, just what's got, you can tell by listening to him, what's gone on and what he's committed to. And I'm proud to say he's, uh, in, in the movement with us. Um, if you want to find out more about operation Libertas, how you can help out, how you, how you can buy a copy of Scott Horton's book so that, uh, an active duty, uh, service, a member will uh, be exposed to a copy. Uh, go over to decentralizedrevolution.com slash nine zero. Uh, thanks to my co-producer, Simon Kalpin, and thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And as always, thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack over at takehumanaction.com. And thanks to everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to decentralized revolution. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.